0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Today, our guest is Congressman John Yarmuth. Uh, I was very, very happy to have him on the show. Uh, we've talked to him once before, but but I, you know, I thought this interview went great. He talked to us for about a half an hour about all kinds of different subjects. And Jasmine, it's just really nice to have somebody on. And a legislature that's functioning and doing good things for people, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I do think so. And I have always said that John Yarmouth is one of our most patient guests because the last time we had him on, we couldn't record in our normal studio. And we had to record in this like small office that was like 80 degrees in the summer. I forgot about Um, that. (laughs) And then today, I... I had mic issues when we first started, so he was very patient again. I think our other most patient guest is Joni Jenkins because oh. she came to your house. Yeah, she had to come but to my house. they are the top
0: That's two. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, and Jasmine, I do think that this interview was really great. He, he opened up quite a bit about uh, the insurrection on January 6th. Yeah. I had read some stuff when we were preparing for the interview just about his reactions in the moment. And, and a lot of the stuff I read was very much like on the day of everything happening. Uh, And it seemed like he, yeah, in the stuff I read, and he actually talked about this in the interview, it seemed like he was having trouble, like just coming up with words for what was going on, which is totally fair. And he talked a little bit about that, and then also kind of how he's processed it since then. And and he was very raw and very honest with us about how he feels about everything that happened on the 6th. So uh, yeah, definitely something worth checking out. I hope you listen to it. Uh, Before we get to that, though, we have three topics to talk about. So I'm going to do a deeper dive into how the Kentucky legislature has has laid out its spending of the American Rescue Plan Act funds. There's lots of stuff in there that has gotten some scrutiny, some some look some looks at it, but but there's a bunch of stuff in there that I haven't even seen covered in the media at all. So we're going to go into all of that. Jasmine's going to give us an update on police and protests in Louisville as things kind of gear up for the summer and things get a little bit warmer outside. We may see start seeing some more of that. Uh, and then I'm going to do a COVID update. So without any further ado, let's get to how Kentucky is spending its Air American Rescue Plan Act money. Alright, Jasmine. So, uh, in case you haven't been listening to the show, on the last day of the session, the Kentucky legislature appropriated hundreds of millions of dollars of American Rescue Plan Act money to be used across the state in a lot of different ways. While Andy Bashir has publicized his plan since the passage of the law, you know, he had a plan that he came out with pretty quickly, the legislature didn't really have time to debate what was in those appropriations and really just kind of passed up on the last day. And Jasmine, you did a great job of going over most of this last week, uh, but of course it was in the context of a million other things that the legislature did too. And because we're appropriating hundreds of millions of dollars, I felt like we should probably spend at least a little bit more time talking about it. So... Uh, there's three different bills I wanted to highlight. Uh, the first one is SB 36, which appropriates 250 million total dollars. So of that 250 million, 150 million is allocated to counties directly for water infrastructure. So this money is going to be used by the counties themselves on whatever projects they see fit. Uh, the, mon- the money is actually appropriated to the individual counties based on population. So, you know, like Fayette's going to get a lot. And then, you know, like Robinson is going to get not as much, right? So it's based on your population. And uh, the one exception to that is that Jefferson County is going to get less. So, just in case you think that that's just because they want to like sock it to Louisville, the reason that they're doing that is because Louisville is getting more money directly in ARPA funds. So, you know, that I guess, I guess, I guess that's fair. What what do you think about that, Jasmine? Do you think that Louisville and Jefferson County should have gotten like like their full share, or do you think it's okay that we got less because Louisville got more money directly in the bill?
1: I think that makes sense that. I mean, we were already getting money, and, and some of these like smaller counties really need the money for water infrastructure.
0: Yeah, that's very true, and their tax bases are a lot less well-developed. Now, I mean, there's another side to this, which is to say that Louisville has a lot more needs. Uh, we have a much more diverse population. Uh, I, you know, there's a debate to be had, for sure, but but I agree with you, Jasmine. I think it's, it's, it's fair the way that it is. All right, so that's the first $150 million. Counties themselves, your county government- Uh, If you have a fiscal court, they're the people going to be making those decisions. If you live in Louisville or Lexington, of course, it's a little bit different, but that's how that first $150 million is going to be spent. $50 million is is allocated to, quote, grants to counties to provide drinking water services to underserved rural customers or to counties under a federal consent decree, unquote. So, these are grants that are going to be administered by the Kentucky Infrastructure Authority, which is also receiving $75,000 to actually administer the program. So, you know, this is for like really, really bad problems that are tough to tackle, people who don't have good service or that the federal government has said, this is so bad, you're under a consent degree. So, you know, we're, we're taking a big chunk of this money, $50 million of this money to actually fix real serious problems. Via the use of grants so obviously this will be for like counties where the money that they're getting directly isn't going to be enough and they need an individual grant to solve the individual problem so the rest the other 50 million dollars in this bill is allocated to supplement county projects quote. Whose cost is in excess of a county's allocation amount, unquote, and and that's also going to be administered by the Kentucky Infrastructure Authority. And yeah, so like if you have a problem and your county is like, okay, well we got you know two million dollars, but it's a five million dollar project, you can go to these people and say we need an additional three million dollars to to do this project, and that board will say either yes or no, Uh, and that's how we're spending two hundred and fifty million dollars on. Uh, sewer and water infrastructure. So, so that's a lot of money, Jasmine. That's a lot of money to spend on water infrastructure. But, you know, Kentucky is probably unique in, in their water infrastructure needs. We really, really need it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really great that most of these projects are going to be administered on the county level, meaning that the people closest to the issues are going to be able to prioritize and determine the solutions to real problems in their community. I mean, these people who, you know, get elected to fiscal court because they see a problem in their community and then feel hamstrung because they don't have the dollars to solve it. You've got the dollars now, guys. You can do it. Uh, so I hope that they do a, a good job. One thing that will become a theme in this segment is that I don't know who is on the Kentucky Infrastructure Authority, but they're gonna have a lot of power. This is like a hundred million dollars that they are yeah. that they are allocating and they're gonna have to do a lot of, you know, digging into the guts of these projects and to see like make you know There's, of course, whenever you have this much money flying around, there's a ton of potential for fraud and abuse, and they're going to have to do a good job to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, That's a lot of responsibility and a lot of opportunity for the people who are serving on that board. So I hope they're good. (laughs) All right. So that's SB 36, the water infrastructure bill. HB 382 is $715 million. uh, That does two big things. $140 $140 million is for full-day kindergarten for 2021 to 2022. Uh, you talked about this last week, Jasmine, but this is one year of full-day kindergarten and the money goes mm-hmm. directly towards the SEEK allocation. That's just... It's basically just giving extra money to SEEK uh, and it will be administered through the exact same formula. So, you know, instead of the money cutting off for people, for children who are in kindergarten, they're just going to get the full dollar allocation and those kids will have the ability to go to kindergarten. So uh, I, it's a really great way to avoid overhead. And also, you know, Kentucky does a pretty good job of doling out those Seek dollars. And the way that that runs is something that's been done in Kentucky for quite a long time now. So, uh, you know, a good way to just plug this money in and have it roll. So, I'm really glad that we're getting one year of full-day kindergarten, and I really hope that the state comes up with the money in the future to continue to fund it. My kid's only seven months. She doesn't have kindergarten for another few years. Hopefully, by the Mm -hmm. time it rolls around, she's able to go for free. Uh, Okay, so that's the first 140 million. The big chunk of HB 382's uh, American Rescue Plan Act funds is 575 million dollars, and that's to repay the Title 12 loan that Kentucky took out for unemployment. I think that in the end, that that taking out that loan was a very smart idea of Andy Beshear's because basically we were able to start to administer uh, extended UI very quickly. Uh, You know, there haven't it hasn't gone absolutely perfectly, but I think you know. We were able to really start getting money into people's pockets very quickly, took out a loan, and then basically were able to pay back that loan with money from the people who loaned it to us in the first place. A smart move, I think, because we really, really needed that money at the beginning of the pandemic. So that is the money for HB382. And then the last one is HB556, $222 million. So, Jasmine, this this first part is something I actually sent it to you when I saw this, but it's $37 million to COVID-19 mit- mitigation in, quote, congregate or vulnerable population settings, unquote. This money seems like it's going to fund grants with the Justice and Public Safety Cabinet will administer. And that cabinet is directed to prioritize, quote, alternative sentencing and diversionary programs for census reduction in prisons, jails, detention centers, and reentry facilities, unquote. Jasmine, did you know that this was part of the uh, the 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 IRPA uh, plan in Kentucky?
1: No, I didn't until you showed it to me. And so last week when I talked about some of these bills, I started to like get into the weeds, and then was like, <laughs> "We can't do this. We can't have." Like a two-hour show where we talk about every bill that passed and all of the contents of it. So, no, I didn't know about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, though, you know, we do our show and we do our, our best to stay on top of these types of things. But this, I don't feel like it was even covered in any of the newspapers or any of the television stations. And, I mean, it seems like a pretty big deal. We're actually going to start exploring some alternative incarceration programs, which hopefully will keep people from getting COVID and maybe just better than sending people to jail, Right.
1: Yeah, hopefully. It's to me it's it's a little vague about like what all they can do with this mm-hmm. funding, um but it it sounds like a good thing for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I and this is again 37 million dollars, which is a lot of money. <laughs> Everything in here is just a ton of money. Uh, and it's a big opportunity for for Andy Bashir. Like you mentioned, it is quite vague, uh, but but the governor's Justice and Public Safety cabinet has an opportunity to really explore a way to do incarceration or or whatever we want to do in that justice system in a better way than we've been doing it and, and you know any if anybody who listens to jasmine talk on this show knows that there's like really significant problems with the way that we do incarceration yeah. in this city state and country so you know again an opportunity and hopefully uh the, the justice and public safety cabinet takes advantage of it All right, $53 million is the next outlay, and that goes to renovations to the interior of the Capitol, which mostly seems to be to the guts of the building, including mechanical, electrical, and plumbing upgrades, and then $5 million for renovations to the Capitol Annex exterior, quote, including terrace repairs and waterproofing upgrades, unquote. Jasmine, spending money on the Capitol is one of those things that, like, it never is very popular because it's like, (laughs) we don't, we're not able to spend money on school transportation and all this kind of stuff, but I mean, if you've been in the Capitol, it's it's not super nice. You know, it's <laughs> I, I think that's kind of true of capitals across the country, um, you know. And, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, they're supposed to kind of be like shining beacons of democracy. And I I think paying for better plumbing in the, in the Capitol building is probably OK uh, with me, especially when you have this much money kind of flying around. This is probably your best opportunity to make the Capitol a little nicer.
1: It looks nice on the outside, but it's not like incredibly modern on the inside or anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and also, like, it's just it, it obviously it's not going to be very efficient because they just don't keep up with it like they should because yeah. spending money on it l- like that is bad and, you know, plumbing upgrades, you, you can save a bunch of money and also make it a lot more efficient in, in terms of like the the water use there. I'm sure that they have several of these like several gallons of water for per, per flush and stuff, so uh, that's something that we can really, you know, take advantage of, I think uh, to make the capital greener In addition to more more beautiful. So there you go. That's that's that. But the bill also does foresee the potential that this money might not pass muster uh, with the feds as an appropriation from the American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, it says that if that is the case, the money's gonna be used to repair schools instead. Uh, we talked a little bit about, about this with Congressman Yarmouth, and, and he was like, you know, we tried to be, uh, allow states to have a lot more flexibility in what they're able to spend things on. And yeah, they are able to do a lot more stuff than they were able to with the CARES Act. But yeah, this is something that I think they're a little worried that might not pass muster. But if it does, we'll have a nicer capital. The biggest outlay from HB five fifty six is $127 dollars for school facility replacements and renovation. There already exists a ranking for you know capital needs for schools, and, and the money is supposed to be spent based on that list that already exists. So beyond that, that the what they what's what's called the Kentucky Facilities Inventory and Classification System. Um, these projects are supposed to be prioritized based on whether or not school districts have already levied ten cent property taxes. For capital improvements. That's something that school boards are allowed to do. They're allowed to put this 10 cent tax in place at their own discretion. And some of them do that in order to meet their own capital needs. And some say, you know, we're just going to ride it out with these bad facilities because we don't want to tax our people anymore. Uh, And this bill makes a choice to say, you know, if you have already made an investment in your capital structures, we're going to give you extra money to do that. And anything left over is for the for the counties and school districts that did not do that. So I, I thought that was an interesting choice. I agree with it. I think that you know if you've already shown that you're willing to to you know pay the price because it's not popular to raise taxes. If you're willing to increase that ten cent. Uh, levy to increase your capital outlays rewarding those people that took that chance uh, i think is is a good idea so so that's what's gone on there with these school districts Uh, and another thing to say is the group administering this program is the school facilities construction commission jasmine i did not know that 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 board and commission or commission existed till so reading this bill uh, yet another example of you know 100 127 million dollars being min- being administered by this commission you know these things are important you know having good people serving on boards and commissions is is, is a big deal so hopefully the people on that commission as well are going to do a good job so jasmine in the end this is 1.2 billion dollars that is a lot of money. It's only about half, I think, of the money that we're actually going to get uh, or that's actually going to get spent. This is just money that came directly to the state. There's a lot that went to cities, to counties, uh, to school districts uh, to do their own things. Uh, but this is the money that came directly to the states and what the state's going to spend it on. If used correctly, this money can really change lives and livelihoods in Kentucky. Uh, it presents a really significant opportunity to the Bashir administration to so that, that it can effectively administer programs that invest in uh, people, uh, I, I think he's up for it, I, but I, I, I don't. You know, I, I, I'm ready to watch and see it happen. Uh, what do you think? What do you think, Governor Bashir's prospects are of being successful in administering this money? Yeah,
1: I believe in Governor Bashir. You know, like the same way I feel about COVID, I trust Andy. Yeah, <laughs> like I think he will do a good job. At governing.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the thing that I thought when I, when I was thinking about this, is that, like, Andy Bashir got thrown into this wild situation with COVID-19. And it's not fun to to govern in a crisis. And and you've seen him really come under some significant pressure. Uh, if you watch the press conferences he has, you know, it, it, you've we've seen him get emotional at, at trying to deal with this problem as it exists. And, you know, he, he he's done a really great job in the face of it. Governing and having your job be administering, spending $1.2 billion is a hard job, but that's the job you want to do when you become the governor. The mm-hmm. federal government is handing you a ton of money. Do a good job with it and make your citizens' life better. I'm really happy that Andy Bashir is getting the opportunity to do that. And I do think, I do think he's going to do a good job. The, and the last thing, just to make this point again, uh, another major takeaway should be the powers of different boards and commissioners. We talk about these things a lot. Jasmine, I, I always bring up our first show was about boards and commissions uh, and the Bevan administration completely restructuring many of them. And that was kind of a, a thing that was in the news. And some people were like, what's the big deal? Hopefully now you see why that is a really big deal. Uh, being on these boards and commission and their and their makeup is often quite politically fraught. But in times like these, they wield a huge amount of power uh, to select which programs and programs, projects and programs get a piece of funding. So it's good to pay attention on who gets to serve and you know, there you go. All right, Jasmine, that is the American rescue plan act in Kentucky. Tell us about protests and policing here in Louisville.
1: Yeah. So a lot's gone on over the last couple months that we haven't really caught up on or talked about because we've been talking about the 2021 legislative session, which is now over so we can catch up a little bit. So Last month, protesters gathered to remember the one-year anniversary of Breonna Taylor's death. Um, Hundreds marched in Louisville, and the day was filled with poetry, music, speeches. Charles Booker was there. Several other activists and even celebrities were in Louisville for that day. And other cities like Lexington and Murray um, also held marches for that anniversary as well. So now... Brianna's memorial has been removed from Injustice Square, and a marker honoring her will soon be placed there. So for over six months, people were always in that area. She had a huge memorial that was added to consistently, and and people really held down that spot. And so though protesters are no longer holding down the square the way that they were before, I, I think it lives on as like a meeting place. For example, people met there a few weeks ago to caravan to the Capitol to support Brianna's law. So I, I think when there's something that happens um, wh- where people want to come together to either protest or support, I think that that will now like be the place where People meet up to do that, even though it's kind of different than how it was for the last year.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that is because that, uh, you know, that was where it was last year, and people know it. But also, just makes sense logistically because it's right there in the middle of town, next to the courtyard, (laughs) court courthouses, right? So um,
1: the courthouses and Metro Hall, where you know Metro Council meets. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, So I think there's no doubt about it that that's going to continue to be a meeting place, and, and hopefully, like that that park will be you know, memorialized in some kind of way that allows people to continue to use it. um, And and we remember what happened there forever.
1: Exactly. Um, And then there are also two new lawsuits that we haven't talked about. So Kenneth Walker already has a state court lawsuit, but has since filed a federal lawsuit. And then the other one is a lawsuit filed by Philip Satterthwaite, who is LMPD's former diversity and inclusion officer He's filed a whistleblower suit against LMPD due to retaliation for his work to improve the department's hiring practices. Um, So we'll try to, like, you know, stay updated on those. But those are two new ones that have been filed since we've last talked about these issues.
0: Yeah, whistleblower lawsuits are kind of tough, right? Because you have to, you know, get protected status and then you have to. There's like a lot of stuff that has to happen before all of that can even start. Right.
1: Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. Right. Brett Hankison's attorney um, sought to move his trial to a different venue, um, but Judge Ann Bailey Smith denied the motion for the time being. The prosecutor in that case cited the Chaban trial in Minnesota. It was like, you know, that trial, it took a couple weeks to pick a jury, but that trial was able to be held, you know, where it occurred. And so um, Judge Ann Bailey Smith has denied that motion for now. I think it can it can be revisited if they do have trouble picking a jury, um, but for now, Officer Hankison's trial will remain in Jefferson County.
0: Yeah, that that this is a big issue whenever these these kind of cases come up. I mean, I I seem to remember not remember but have read about like the the rodney king trial in in california that was moved out of los angeles county i think to like or maybe to a different part of los angeles county it wasn't a downtown trial and, and a lot of people point to that as one of the reasons why the police officers were acquitted in that trial and, and that's something that happens a lot uh fighting over where the, the the trial will occur um is a big deal so i think that this uh this can be i i don't know jasmine you, you construe this as, the, as a win for the prosecution uh, of you know the police officer here
1: Yeah, probably, and and you know, like in Kentucky, there there aren't really a lot of other count. There's not any other county that looks like Louisville, right? You know, so I don't know what the next most convenient county to have the trial in would be. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think it is. Also, a while back we talked about Major Kimberly Burbrink being demoted after her involvement in the Breonna Taylor investigation. So she oversaw the division um, that was executing these warrants and there was like kind of some potential like interference on her part with the investigation and so she was demoted and the Courier Journal has been trying to get her investigative file and LMPD is withholding the records um, and the only reason I note this is, is just because it's kind of a theme that some of our like law enforcement agencies withhold records and courts have ruled that LMPD, that KSP have violated open records in, in various instances where they haven't turned them over.
0: Yeah. We talked a lot about that KSP thing when it was going on. Um, yeah. it is, it is a big deal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we'll see if the current Journal is able to get those eventually, or if they'll have to, um, get an AG opinion and then file a lawsuit. We'll see what happens. I mean,
0: even then, even if they win that, the, the, Police op- Police departments have been not exactly forthcoming, even under legal yeah. requirement to do so. So
1: yep, that is true. Um, so we also wanted to note that a civilian review board has been approved by Metro Council in Louisville. Um, the River City Fraternal Order of Police criticized two of the approved members on their Facebook, uh, and they sort of compared them to cop killers they shared like a link where someone who had previously been convicted of killing a police officer was serving on some like police reform advisory board in some other state and said that the members of Louisville's board like weren't too far off or, or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so law enforcement in Louisville also continues to to use their social media in an interesting way.
0: Yeah, Jasmine, this is I, I, there's a lot of things that happen with the FOP that like I think are ridiculous that I, I look at and I'm like, well, I can kind of see how this is going to resonate differently with people who are more conservative with me. And I get, yeah. I get how this is going to be different. But this one, I think that they look like fools to everybody uh, because it was just a completely ridiculous comparison. Um, and, and and clearly like you want to have people from lots of different perspectives serving on a board like this. And like, just because these people, you, you like they're basically making the case. You can't ever be critical of police and, and mm-hmm. be on the civilian review board. And, and that's just not feasible or or appropriate. So, you know, I think yeah. that they looked ridiculous to everybody, not just to me. So <laughs> that's that's that is sad that that happened.
1: Yeah. And then the last story, um, this is new news from this week. Louisville's public safety chief Amy Hess is leaving her position next month. So she just took the job last May at the request of the mayor she took the job after Steve Conrad's retirement, uh, which we now know, you know, he was later fired right before he was about to retire. Um, in that role, she was over LMPD, the fire department, EMA, and corrections. So like not only was she dealing with these major policing issues and The protests in Louisville, she was also overseeing a department that was dealing with a huge COVID outbreak with the Department of Corrections. So that's a tough job, I think. She cited devoting more time to her family as her reason for leaving, and she's still going to serve on Louisville's Criminal Justice Commission. Um, and just, you know, a little bit about her history, um, in the position she had to testify before Metro Council when they were investigating the Fisher administration's handling of the protests and she admitted that mistakes were definitely made during the summer, but felt like the city's response got better with, with regards to like communication, um, as time went on. So Mayor Fisher said that he and his team will be evaluating reporting structures going forward. So I don't know, Robert, do you have any opinions about her leaving that role?
0: I mean, I think it is kind of mysterious. Whenever anybody like cites uh, a desire to be with their family, you know, your eyes kind of perk up a little bit. But I mean, I think you you made you made the point that like this is an incredibly stressful job with lots yeah. of different components that were very stressful in different directions. And there was a lot of public outcry about her and and the job she was doing over the summer, uh, which I mean, I think was appropriate. I, I do think that mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff they needed to do better. And, and you know, I, I she's even said that. So uh, you know dealing with all of this and solving these really hard problems and, and struggling to solve these really hard problems is going to be really stressful. So, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I'm willing to take her at her word for this, um, that she just is, is tired of doing this high stress job and doesn't want to do it anymore. But if something came out where it turned out that that there was something else going on, I wouldn't you know be, be shocked just because of uh, it was a little sudden and a, a little surprising that it happened.
1: Yeah. That's kind of how I feel too. I think one might definitely do that job for a year and then be like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean, you but, see a lot of turnover yeah. in the, the uh, public defender's office uh, kind of for the same reason, probably.
1: We absolutely do. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. There's your update on on police and protests. You know, uh, you know, we're probably gearing up to to start seeing more of this. As, as the weather gets a little bit warmer, uh, as, as happens uh, a lot of times when these movements start popping up, um, I think that removal came out of the 2020 protest movement in, in a better place. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm, – I'm willing to say that. Um, that's my opinion. Uh, and and I hope that that we can build on that. And, you know, I think that there was a little bit of legislation that, that did manage to get through even our crazy Republican legislature um, due to a lot of those protest movements. So, I, you know, I hope that we're able to build on that and, and make Kentucky an even better place in, in a place that's just exceedingly difficult to get anything done in. So... All right. We're, we're moving on. Uh, COVID before we get to our interview with John Yarmouth. So Kentucky actually ended 11 straight weeks of declining cases this week. On Monday, Governor Bashir told us that Kentucky saw 4,377 total cases last week, which is a 4% increase from the previous week's 4,196. This amount of COVID is actually still smaller than the number of cases from three weeks ago, so I would hesitate to say that cases are increasing, just as I was a little hesitant in the past few weeks to say that cases were still declining. I I think mostly we would describe this as a plateau. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I, I think we're at with this. Uh, Kentucky is down to just five red counties as of Tuesday. There are three along the Tennessee border, which are Simpson, McCreary, and Whitley. And then there's Harlan, which is actually on the Virginia border, but not too far from those places. And then Powell County, which is kind of in the middle. I was looking what was going on in Powell County, but I couldn't find anything in particular. So we have only five Red counties, and then there's really only 40 counties that are even left in the orange zone. Most of Kentucky is actually now in the, in the yellow, which is pretty good. Louisville and Lexington are, are now in the yellow zone. Both Fayette and Jefferson County are yellow in the state's map. Louisville is still seeing declining cases. There was a 13% decline week over week last week, so even though the state actually increased slightly, Louisville went down quite a bit. Louisville had fewer than 700 cases last week for the first time since early July. Lexington saw a slight increase last week, which we mentioned, but but it's actually back into a decline. And last week, Lexington saw 204 cases, which is its smallest caseload since early June. So, so Lexington and Louisville are actually places that are still getting better, um, uh, you know, even though the state ticked up slightly last week. On Tuesday, the hospital census was 376. Last week when I gave this update, it was 378. So, throughout most of last week, the number fluctuated pretty significantly. It went up as high as 411 on Thursday and dropped as low as 355 on Sunday, which, to be fair, that was Easter. uh, So, that might be one of the reasons why it was lower. Our hospitalization metrics is something that I've mentioned is uh, something that was in really big free fall, but but that's no longer the case. We're definitely plateaued uh, in our hospitals uh, since it's just like with our caseload. The state actually doesn't release demographics of the individuals hospitalized with COVID-19. But I would be kind of interested in seeing those numbers. And across the country, it's become quite a story that younger people are making up a higher proportion of the hospital census. And that actually, I think, would track with what I've been saying about vaccines and that vaccines are causing our hospital census to go down. And I think without absent this, the vaccines that we have, our hospital census would be quite a bit higher. So um, that that's what's going on with that. Kentucky is 33rd among states for new cases of COVID, about the same place that we were last week. The same areas across the country are, are being hit hard. Michigan and the eastern seaboard states are, are the worst places for COVID cases. The New York Times actually has a pretty good piece about the role variants are playing in the increases in, in those different states and what those variants are. Variants, scary stuff out there, so be careful. Um, the fourth wave, though, which is something that a lot of people have mentioned, uh, has really kind of yet to materialize nationally and, and here in Kentucky. Um, Jasmine, did you ever have one of those cars, toy cars, when you were a kid that you like pulled back and you could like let go and it would go real fast forward?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I kind of equate the fourth wave of COVID to that that car. Like I think we've pulled the car backwards um, and we're holding it. So like. It might be the case that we just like lift up the back wheels and it kind of spins out and and it doesn't happen. Uh, Or we could let go of that car and and cases could explode. It hasn't happened yet, but it could, but it might not. Uh, And and I hope, you know, that that is a good analogy. What what grade would you give that analogy, Jasmine?
1: That's pretty good. I'll give it an A minus.
0: A minus. All right. There you go. Very good. All right. Um, of course, the way that we're going to get out of this is vaccines. Uh, and Kentucky actually only vaccinated 125,000 people last week, which is the lowest that we've seen since since uh, before March. And only 58 percent of last week's vaccine allocation from the federal government, which is not great. And the press conference on Monday, Governor Bashir expressed concern that there was less demand for shots among the people who are eligible to get the vaccine, meaning that we might be hitting vaccine hesitancy a little bit earlier than expected. However, this week, Kentucky is expanding eligibility. And I think that we're basically at the point now where anybody can get one that's over the age of 16. So uh, that's at least true in most places across the state. I don't know. There might be some individual sites that are still in different stages.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely like the rule statewide, but some specific sites are still catching up, like the Lou Back site. But I did see today that... Cardinal Stadium is also going to open a mass vaccine site as well. And that's open to everyone over 16, too.
0: Very good. So hopefully, like demand will start to pick up with that group of people, the younger uh, group of people, so that we're actually starting to use all of our vaccines again. Uh, But I do think it's something to be concerned with that we're starting to hit a little bit of vaccine hesitancy among the group of people who are eligible to get it now, which is people, I think, you know, 1C and then also people who are, uh, I think, over Over 40, maybe where we're at in terms of like the age grading. But overall, Kentucky's actually started the vaccination process for 34% of our population. More than a third. That's that's really great. I think overall, if you had asked me on, you know, November 2020, where we would be in terms of vaccines, I did not think we would be 34% by early April.
1: Yeah, I was thinking I would maybe get it in the like mid to late summer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Yeah, I was in the same boat. Uh, I did. I mean, we don't need to re me being in one C. I did get the second. <laughs> I I did get the second shot this weekend, Jasmine. Uh, I got the second Moderna sh- Moderna shot, and I was quite nervous about side effects. Um, but I didn't have any. That was very nice for yeah. me. Um, the only thing that happened was my arm was pretty sore, and it's the arm I like to sleep on, so that was a little annoying. But, uh, I mean, compared to what some people have experienced, uh, I had it pretty well. Uh, and I would say my, my personal experience, like, don't be worried about side effects. I think if you're if you're feeling nervous about that, and that's the reason why you don't want to get the shot, don't let that bother you. There's a very good chance you won't have any side effects. And if you do, they go away after one day. So you, you can handle it. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Kentucky, like I mentioned, we have, we're up to 34% of our population that's vaccinated. We've actually fallen back a little bit to about 26th in the nation in terms of the number of people who started a, the vaccine process. New Hampshire and New Mexico have both vaccinated more than 40% of their population. Very good for states wow. with, with new in them. I think New York and uh, mm-hmm. new, new Jersey are actually also pretty high up there, like mid-30s or a little bit higher than us. So, um, very good for for New Hampshire and New Mexico uh, above 40%. So we are rapidly approaching the point in time when anybody can get vaccinated. And, and if you haven't started the process of finding a shot, I would really, really encourage you to start doing that. Start going to the different sites, the Luvac site, Walgreens, Kroger, they have all got them. Um, they're, 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 they're ready for you. Uh, start that process if you haven't yet. And if you have any friends or family members who are nervous about getting the shot or hesitant about vaccines in general, I would really recommend you talk to them. Um, you know, we aren't going to get out of this until almost everybody gets a vaccine. You know, herd immunity doesn't occur to like 70% at a minimum. And we we want to get there. We want to get to the point where we can start doing stuff like we did before. Um, and I, I mean, it's just my personal opinion that we aren't going to get there unless people who are gung-ho about vaccines start having real conversations, honest conversations with people who are who are hesitant about it. Um Do you know anybody in your life, Jasmine, that that's hesitant, and have you had a conversation about it?
1: I have, but not anyone that's in state. But I've definitely had a conversation with a relative in another state about getting the vaccine and tried to dispel some of their theories about it
0: yeah i would say that those conversations don't always you know go super great but i think they're. yeah
1: i don't think i changed any minds um yeah she also tried to encourage me not to get it and she didn't change my mind
0: <laughs> well i think that I, I think that you know oftentimes with conversations i this these are conversations we have about politics just the same like you may not change somebody's mind right then but you might get them thinking and if you get them thinking um maybe they might change their mind later and that's just the the way that this kind of goes. And don't be discouraged if the person doesn't change their mind and you're not able to just, you know, um, ergo, ipso facto, I'm correct and you're wrong. Uh, and walk away with them being like, well, you're really smart and, and you're right the whole time. That's probably not going to happen. But just know that having these conversations is, is how we're going to get out of this. So don't be afraid to have them. Um, yeah. And, and just lastly, if you haven't been vaccinated, be extra careful. Those variants are out there and it's easier to catch those than normal COVID. So it's actually worse right now if you if you don't have a vaccine than ever before. And if you have been vaccinated, be smart. It, it's probably okay to start hanging out with other vaccinated friends, especially outside. Uh, you know, I we had an Easter thing in my parents' house with all my vaccinated relatives that was really nice. I got to say, we were hanging out, you know, it was like 15 people, uh, all of whom had, had, most of whom had gotten both shots and everybody had gotten At least one, and you know that that was that was really great to actually see everybody and and hang out. Uh, uh, And I felt good about it. I didn't feel super nervous like I had when I had Christmas with you know just my immediate family. Uh, So it was really nice to get back to that. Um, But that's the way that we're going to get out of that. So, but but just be smart. Be smart about uh, about hanging out with people, especially in crowds, and non-socially distanced indoor activities. But but one thing is just continue to wear your mask. Vaccine or no vaccine, that's a small thing that you can do just to keep everybody a little bit safer. So just continue to wear your mask everywhere that you go. So I think mask fashion is starting to happen a little bit. Jasmine, do you have any fashionable masks?
1: I wouldn't call them fashionable, but I have enough. To, like, you know, I've been working in the office a lot this whole time and still have to wear like business clothes. I have enough to where I can make it like vaguely... Sort of match what I'm wearing, mm-hmm. or like I have some kind of solid colored ones, like black ones that I think look okay with my outfits and stuff. But, um, I wouldn't call them particularly fashionable.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kelsey's been working with our, our neighbor who, uh, is a seamstress sometimes. Uh, she actually like cut up a, a polyester dress and made a, <laughs> a mask out of it that matched the dress. Uh, but she loves that it. Doesn't- That
1: doesn't surprise me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, So (laughs) so Kelsey is definitely mask fashion forward. uh, Yeah, she is. So if you need need mask fashion advice, call my wife. She's going to help you out. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, everybody look good out there with your masks and be safe, be smart. Yeah. Anything else about COVID you want to say, Jasmine?
1: Nope. I think you covered it.
0: All right. Well, with that, let's get to our interview with Congressman John Yarmouth. John Yarmouth is a member of the United States House of Representatives for Kentucky's 3rd District, which includes most of Louisville. First elected in 2006, Congressman Yarmouth is now the chairman of the House Budget Committee. We invited him on today to talk about the American Rescue Plan and his role in Washington as Kentucky's leading Democrat. Congressman Yarmouth, welcome back to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you, Robert. Great to be with you and Jasmine. Yeah, we're very, very happy to have you as always. Um, so, yeah, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about the American Rescue Plan, which is you know a huge investment by Congress into the American people. Uh, and, and its design hopes to accomplish many things across the whole country. And as one of, the arch- one of the architects of the plan, are you happy with the current plan for how the money is to be spent here in Kentucky?
2: Yeah, I am, Robert. Actually, I've talked to the governor on several occasions about that. I think his plan makes a lot of sense. He's still, We still have about a trillion, do- I mean, a billion dollars left mm-hmm. of, of the money that hasn't been allocated. So, uh, you know, and, and he's going to have to negotiate with the General Assembly on that. But I think to pay off the unemployment loan that, uh, and then to use it for, for water systems uh, throughout the state made sense. The beauty of this plan is... The, the state and local governments were given a, a lot of flexibility in how to use the money, and that was something that we all were, were very much focused on, uh, because we know in the in the CARES Act from a year earlier, the money was very, was was granted very restrictively. So you had to basically have a direct cost in dealing with the pandemic, and that really didn't recognize the multifaceted ways in which the pandemic affects. Uh, a local or state economy. So, I think that the governor show, showed good judgment. Uh, the The use of the money so far that's been allocated by the General Assembly is clearly uh, enumerated in the in the legislation. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty satisfied with it. Yeah. But meanwhile, meanwhile, there's just tons of money going to again local governments, going to school districts, going to obviously individuals. I mean. This is one of the astounding things. Of the six congressional districts in Kentucky, on average, uh, $900 million in disposable income was created in each congressional district. Yeah, That's an amazing amount of money.
0: Yeah, it really is. I, I definitely think it's going to go a long way towards showing up a lot of the balance sheets of the households around the country. In uh, and, and our state, yeah, uh, I think we're, we're pushing the boundaries of what's uh What's being allowed? lot of, there's actually even a trigger in one of the bills that was passed in the legislature to say, if this isn't okay, I think it was for the capital renovation. Uh, if this isn't okay, we'll just put it towards schools. So we'll see. We'll see yeah. if the Congress has anything to, stay to say to Kentucky. Yeah, but
2: you know, Jefferson County Public Schools get about $400 million.
0: Oh, there's a ton of money. money. Yeah. A ton of money. Yeah.
2: And you know, I was talking to the superintendent of Fleming County Schools. Mm-hmm. Fleming County School Public School. the entire school system has 2,200 kids. Uh, about half of them have been in class since September. Half uh, learning virtually. Uh, it's been costing them fifty thousand dollars a week mm, to wow. have that level of of attendance, and it's a very poor school district, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got seven million dollars in this thing. This this school this superintendent was over the moon. He says you cannot imagine the difference it'll make. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a that's a school district that votes. By seventy points
0: for Trump, by the way. Yeah, well, well, well hopefully the uh, school administrator will remember that uh, when it comes time to talk to his his constituents about what right. uh, what happened. And that's actually kind of my next question, which is that uh, the American Rescue Plan is polling very well. And, and like you mentioned, there's just a ton of stories locally of, of of like local leaders who are being able to see money for the first time to solve like long standing problems. And Democrats have really struggled across Kentucky for the past few cycles. So I wonder, how do you hope that Democrats across the state focus their campaign on uh, the American Rescue Plan in, in 2022?
2: I think, first of all, that we need to make sure that the citizens of Kentucky know who voted for it and who voted against it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, I mean, I don't really care that i was the only only member of the federal delegation to vote for it, but they need to know that their are two senators and the other five congressmen all voted against it. And now some of them are even taking credit for some of the things that were in it, <laughs> which I actually predicted. But so that, that's number one. We need to make sure that they understand that one party wants to deal with America's problems and the other pro- party just doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, and I think candidates at all levels, I think state legislative candidates, can Democrats can go out there and say, you we have a party that actually wants to govern, that actually has ideas for governing. And we have another party that doesn't care about governing. Mm-hmm. And the only thing they wanted to do when they took control of the state, uh, the General Assembly, was to basically incapacitate the governor and and then do, worry about things like abortion and things that really don't make that much difference in most people's lives. So you know, it's a fundamental differential in the parties, and we're seeing it, Every day, we're seeing it with the infrastructure plan uh, that the president has advanced. The same way, Republicans have no ideas of their own, and uh, and they actually desperate to come up with reasons to oppose the president's plan, which I think is it's almost hysterical. Yeah, if they're saying, well, it's only five percent of the plan actually is infrastructure because only five percent of the plan deals with roads and bridges, like sewer systems and water systems, and the electric grid and broadband. And airports and ports are not part of infrastructure. You know, that's an, either an 18th or 19th century perspective.
0: Right. Sure there, there's no doubt about it. Uh, it. It is kind of funny to me how there is like a lot of message testing about how to oppose um, these plans that are coming out of the, uh, of the the executive branch right now, uh, and, and there was one that, to talk about like how electric electrifying the transportation system is the thing that polls the worst, and it still only polls like it's still above water. It's fifty one percent positive, Correct. but but that's what they're more concerned about rather than like what do they think is the actual bad part of the plan. Uh, so that's right. that certainly seems to be more of the issue. So so you know, we've talked a little bit about the the American Rescue Plan uh, and, and uh, Kentucky's relationship with it, and I th- do think you brought up a very good point about governing. And w- and we would be remiss to if we didn't ask you about how you thought about Kentucky's uh, past year and how we've responded uh, to the COVID crisis. Obviously you're here in, uh, you're there in, in Washington DC most of the time, uh, but you obviously keep a close eye here in, 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 Kentucky. So as somebody with a unique perspective about how the whole country works and how Kentucky works, um, what did you think about how Kentucky did last year?
3: You know, I'm, I'm really proud
2: of, of the way Kentucky responded. And I, I give Andy Bashir a, a great deal of credit. You know, I'm sure he didn't, when he took office, he didn't bargain for this to be the first challenge he faced right out of, out of the box, but it was. But he responded in a very responsible way. He, he, first of all, which I think is the most important thing you can do, is he communicated with the citizens on a daily basis. And, you know, Governor Cuomo did that too. Several governors did that. But Andy did that extremely well and effectively. And he brought the experts in and, he was calm, but he made it clear what you know what the ba- the balance of the evidence was, and I, I think it's important to say that we need to cut everybody, and I'll say even some Republicans some slack for the first few months of the crisis because nobody knew what we were dealing with. Uh, there really wasn't much evidence, and so you had people saying, for instance, be very conscious of what you touch, wash your hands fifty times a day. Yeah, well, now we understand that there's almost no if any evidence of contact uh, contraction of the of the virus that it's all airborne nobody basically nobody got it from touching something a, a shopping cart or whatever and so people were finding their way and the epidemiologists were trying to work through that but again the, the communication was that something I think Andy Bashir did brilliantly and you know, our experience in Kentucky has certainly surpassed most states, and uh, obviously every loss, every life lost, is a tragedy. I've lost I lost friends to the virus, but you know, comparatively, we did really well. Mm-hmm. And you know I think Mayor Fisher was, was in the same boat to the, that extent. He was communicating regularly, and Louisville sadly just lost his thousandth life, mm-hmm. but. You know, compare that to many other communities, and we've done better. So uh, we still got some challenges ahead. Louisville has suffered some pretty dramatic setbacks economically because of the pandemic, and you know, we've got to get our tourism business back, we, our hospitality business back. But um,
0: yeah, I think we've responded really well. Yeah, uh, I, w- I would agree with that, and I think those are. I'm, I'm glad to hear that somebody with, with your perspective is is agreeing with a lot of the things that we saw last year.
1: So moving away from the American Rescue Plan a little bit, you were in Washington D.C. during the January 6th insurrection. Um, so you, could you tell us a little about your experience that day?
2: Uh, sure, uh, I was in my office. We. We knew that there was the possibility of not what we saw, but at least of some disruption in the community. So none of my staff was in the office. Uh, I was there by myself. Earlier in the day, uh, we were evacuated. For, I'm in the Cannon office building, and we were evacuated to the, uh, the the adjacent office building because there was a pipe bomb found across the street from our building. When I got back to my office, that was about a 45-minute Evacuation. Uh, A few minutes later, I got a text on my uh, phone that said, "Um, External threat to the Capitol, stay in your office, uh, lock the doors, and stay away from the windows. So I sat there, and I sat there for the next, what was eventually six or seven hours, watching what transpired. And it was a bizarre. Um, bizarre day in so many ways. I did about three hours worth of media uh, from my office that day and all during that I was trying to process it and I kept saying to all the people who were interviewing me I can't process this. I just don't Mm -hmm. get it. It was was so sad. It was so disorienting. It was like I was watching another you know, country or a, a news reel of some third world country. And also thinking back of, of my entire life and, and kind of the idyllic image we create in our minds about the United States and, and the iconic structures like the Capitol and that we are the light of the world in terms of democratic government. And then to see that all evaporating in front of me um, was something that, again, I, even three months later, I can't quite process. In some ways, it was far worse than 9-11. Well, 9-11 was obviously a, a, a tragic day, but it, it never really threatened democracy of the United States, our system of government, our society. And this seemed to do that. And... That's what's so frightening.
1: about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, since the the November elections and January 6th, several Democrats have started to talk about the difficulty of serving with some of the more conspiratorial and right-wing GOP representatives. Um, Do you feel the same way? And, you know, how has the relationship between the parties changed since you were first elected?
2: Yeah, it's tough when you when you. Realize that I think it was 136 of of your colleagues voted to overturn the election results, yeah, and that that many presumably were not concerned with what happened on January 6th. and you 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 say, you know, these people endangered my life, they endangered my staff's security, they endangered. The employees' security was the Capitol, the media, all the people who are in the Capitol. And they did it for a ridiculous premise, <laughs> an absurd premise that they all knew was wrong. Every one of them knows that there was no problem with security in the election. And yet they proceeded to uh, defend the president and by inference, defended what happened on 6. So, yeah, it's kind of hard. I I even wrote a piece about this. I said, at the time, I wrote it two days later. I said, I don't know how to react, respond to those people. I don't know how to interact with them. And I still haven't quite figured that out. Now, we still don't work in a hostile environment. We don't yell at each other. We don't hit each other. But the the civility that characterized our day-to-day activities in congress is gone definitely
0: and that, that that i guess in in many ways is a tragedy i, I do think that these things kind of come in waves um there are other moments in american history where things have also been <laughs> very adversarial to the point yeah. of being uh an- lots of animosity so hopefully you know hopefully we can come back around on that maybe I hope so. yeah 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 absolutely um, Louisville said quite a year beyond the pandemic uh, with, with, you know, the the racial justice movement and, and the issues around Breonna Taylor's death. And, you know, we talk a lot on our show about the the, the local the, the the response here in Louisville and, and local governments around Kentucky. And, and we've talked quite a bit about um, the response on the state level with the different uh, bills that have been filed and, and some of the ones that have been passed. Uh, but we haven't really talked too much about the federal response to, to that movement and specifically to how it's intersected with Louisville uh, on our show. Um, are there any things uh, about it, it, that the, the federal government has done in response uh, to Breonna Taylor's death or the, the racial justice movement on the federal level um, that you're particularly proud of from the past year or that you hope uh, get passed uh, in, in this Congress?
2: We've passed a few things in the House that deal with this. Obviously, we're working with criminal justice reform and with police reform. We've passed some measures. There are others pending. Those are important. Well, I'll draw an analogy. We we spent um, many months back in 2018 trying to come up with ideas for budget reform in the House, the process reform, thinking we could come up with things that would make it better. Uh, at the end of the process, we all realized, because we couldn't come up with any consensus on ideas to change the process, that this was a human problem, not a structural problem. And and I think that's where we are in the country with police reform. Until you change hearts and minds, and, and by the way, until some people go to jail for the abuses of power uh, with uh, wearing a badge, then I don't think anything the government's going to do is going to end the problem. So yeah, you know, I'm all for it. I'm all for it trying to, to create some. You know things like no-knock warrants and banning no-knock warrants, and those types of things, forcing mm-hmm. bi- wear, wearing body cams, keeping them on at all times when you're on a call. All these basic things. But Still, it's got to be it's got to be a hearts and minds thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a good thing to acknowledge, uh, and it's good to know that you know we do have a representative that's that's willing to push on a lot of these issues. But yes, it does seem like. Uh, there's a bigger, more innate issue that that exists there.
2: And, uh, yeah, I, Robert, and as, I, and as I said a number of times, you know, and we're seeing it now in the in the, the Chauvin trial, which I think is a good thing. Until police hold each other accountable, mm-hmm. we're never going to get to the root of the problem.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and they're
2: never they're never going to get the support they the total support that they sh- they should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, until they hold themselves accountable, because yeah. yes, we know we know the vast majority of cops are good, decent people that are doing the great thing and they're serving the public and they're taking risks that we wouldn't take. Uh, but but if, when, if they if they're not willing to hold a uh, a bad cop accountable, then they're all complicit.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that, that's what we have to deal
0: with. Yeah, I, I will say that that's been something that I've been a, a little bit surprised to see in that trial, uh, and it does seem like it's something that's different. Hopefully, it, it continues. Yeah. All right, so you are... The uh, highest ranking member of the majority party in Washington, D.C. And, yeah. and as so, you you have some unique insights into how the administration is, is working in our state. Uh, and, and I think like the selection of the two U.S. attorneys in Kentucky is a pretty major looming decision. And from the people that I talked to, it seems like basically every well-connected Democratic attorney in the entire state is trying to fill those two positions. So do you have any insights into this process or do you know when a decision might get made about when those two people will be?
3: Well, I have a
2: lot of insight into the process, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't know what the timetable is in the administration. So uh, at, at the outset, yeah, Governor Bashir and I decided that we would work together and coordinate our recommendations for all of these federal positions, whether it was the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern Dis- and Western Districts, uh, the U.S. Marshals and some other uh Lesser positions, so we we both um, you know, got all the the calls and the letters and the emails, uh, both from candidates and and uh, on behalf of candidates, and we we made some decisions and we um, we made our recommendations. We we basically at the request of the administration, we basically provided multiple uh, recommendations for. The top positions.
3: That,
2: that's what they wanted us to do. They said, "Don't just send us one name. Send us more than one." So we we've, we've done that. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to say who we uh, recommended, but I will say that um, it's been a great pleasure to work with Andy. And you know, yes, I'm the only Democrat at the, at, in the federal delegation, but my my knowledge of the talent in the in the state is much more limited than the governor's is. So, you know, I I really wanted, in many cases, to defer to him and say, okay, tell tell me who you've got because I may have one person and there probably are 20 people throughout Kentucky who um, would be qualified to do those jobs. So we made our recommendations on the U.S. attorney positions. We have no idea when they're going to make those decisions. Initially, they told us that that was not a top priority of theirs, Um, in the transition then they said hurry up and get them to us and then and that was probably a month or six weeks ago and uh, we still haven't heard anything so we're we're awaiting that as well but but i will say one thing Uh, people we recommended i think our main concern was that we recommended people who were right for the times and, you know, there, there were people who were certainly qualified for the position, but may not have been right for this time in, in our state and our country. So um, not, I'm real comfortable with what we did, and hopefully the administration will accept one of our
3: recommendations.
2: <laughs> because we, you know, Mitch, Mitch McConnell has, has made his own recommendations, uh, and you know, we've we've reacted to those, or I have, and um, we'll, yeah. You know, so we'll see. I I, I I expect that sometime in the next month or six weeks we'll hear something on that.
1: As an attorney in Louisville, I think we're all eagerly waiting because we're wondering about uh, the makeup of our bench. <laughs> One more question for you. The election of 2020 was really bad for most Democrats running um, for state offices in Kentucky, but it has certainly increased your stature and your ability to be effective in your job. So um, how are you feeling about Congress over the next two years, maybe compared to how you've felt the past four?
2: Well, I can actually say, how do I feel now compared to my last 14? Uh <laughs> I had pretty much given up hope that Congress could ever do anything consequential. And you know, other than passing the Affordable Care Act, which I was, I was directly involved in because I was on the Ways and Means Committee, which drafted a portion of it, but I wasn't. I didn't play a prominent role in that. Uh, I was just um, thrilled to be a part of what was an incredibly progressive, forward-looking uh, piece of legislation that dealt with people's lives. Other than that, in my 14 years, we haven't done very much that we can say really helped the American people. All, you know. So to say that I and I, I would say most of my colleagues would agree with me, Republicans and Democrats, that you know, the job had become almost purely rhetorical. So we were, you know, we were playing the political theater, but we weren't really governing. What we did with the American Rescue Plan changed my entire perspective. And it kind of, in a way, justified my the last 14 years of frustration to think that we could pass something that would, that would lift tens of thousands of Kentucky kids out of poverty, that we could change the lives of so many Kentucky families and American families, that we could give Kentuckians and Americans hope. It, it really, as I've said to many people, that... Week when we passed, the, when we finally enacted the bill and signed it and Biden signed it into law, it was the best week of my life,
3: mm-hmm.
2: professionally speaking, without question. I mean, and I, I kept thinking, is there anything even close to this week? And I said,
3: nope.
2: Mm. Um, to be able to have that kind of impact on, on people's lives and in, in a very positive way and, and, again, lifting people out of desperate situations. So... You know, I'm a, I'm inspired, I was inspired by that. I think, I hope that it has shown the American people, and we can't stop at that because you can't be you can't be a one-hit wonder, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that and I think we all realize that. But if we can do this infrastructure plan, if we can do the American Families Plan, which the president's gonna introduce, I think, next week, if we can by some hope and a prayer, pass H.R. 1, which will restore democratic systems and principles to our elections, um, then we will have shown that we can actually have a government that functions on behalf of the people. And the thing that inspires me the most is that, and this is a, a great credit to President Biden, but also to our members as well, our congressional members. In my last 14 years, Anytime you ask about doing something significant, the first question was, can we afford it? What can we afford to do? Now the question is, what do we need to do for the American people? What do we need to do to make sure our country meets all of our expectations? And then once we decide that, we say, okay, how do we we get the resources for that? But the first question is, what do we need to do? Mm -hmm. And that's the way government should function. that's that's what's inspired me uh, from the American Rescue Plan and, and moving forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, as people who pay close attention to the Kentucky legislature, it has been really nice to have a federal legislature that actually <laughs> does things to help people uh, to look at uh, when things get a little bleak in Frankfurt. So uh, we really appreciate your service. And also, we really appreciate you coming onto the show. So thank you very much.
2: You bet, Robert. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us?
1: You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at pod. You can like us on Facebook and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of your choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. Currently, you can subscribe to it at forwardky.com slash email, but that may be changing soon, so we'll be sure to update you. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast.
0: All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you
3: next week.